Several weeks in Acts 23. I did not anticipate doing that, but uh, uh, we did have a break from it last week. It's been two weeks now uh, since we were uh, in our study of Acts. You didn't cover Acts last week, did you? Okay. So then, yeah. So then uh, it's been two weeks since we were in Acts. And I was thinking about that because really as I go through this, as we go through this together on a Sunday morning, um, it's just like telling the story. You know, uh, you know, I try to make applications we go through and I, you know, try to point out, like, make sure we know this is God at work because, you know, somehow we sometimes we miss that sort of thing. But really, it's kind of telling the story, telling the historical event, you know, and try to kind of put ourselves there the best that we can. And, uh, um, and so when you take a take a two-week break from it, uh, sometimes it's sort of like, what book are we in? <laughs> you know, what chapter are we in? Sometimes it's easy uh, to forget. So breaks are hard, but breaks are also good uh, to kind of uh, be able to free up our minds for other things. Um, but one of the reasons why I bring that up to say it's been two weeks since we were in Acts chapter 23 is because of where we ended. Uh, we ended with, of course, there's no great place to end when you're telling one, one event. <sighs> But uh, but where we ended last time was, if you remember, was with those 40 men. And uh, presumably they all took this. Maybe, maybe it was less than 40 that actually took the oath. But do you remember what the oath was? We're not going to eat. We're not going to eat till we kill Paul. That's kind of where we ended. And then, of course, Jesus says you're going to Rome, and we said Paul didn't really have a lot to be worried about because Jesus is in control of all things, all authority under his feet. And so here's 40 people who I just really believe. I mean, I just really believe that they thought they were doing what God wanted. I mean, I think they felt very secure that God would be with them. But I think that's maybe the way to say it. I'm sure God's with us on this one. Like God, and this is kind of the point we ended on last time. I'm sure God will conform his will to our will because we're doing it for him after all. And, and, and so the big point that we sort of ended on last time was this idea that um, we need to make sure that we are thinking about his will first, not our will first, and asking him to conform to our will. But we're considering... God's will, and we are conforming ourselves to His will. Um, because I don't think God was, you know, in some angry way disciplining them. This was a choice they made unwittingly, I guess, to set themselves up against God. Did you see that? God had a plan for Paul to go and be just like he was in Jerusalem, a witness in Jerusalem, to be that same kind of witness. In Rome, and they, God's not punishing them. I mean, I, I don't look at it that way, at least, because God just had a plan, and they stood in between God and His plan and said, God, surely you're with us. Unfortunately, God does not conform His will to our will. We are called to conform our will to, to His. And the reason I bring all that up, well, that's review, and that's where we left off. But the other thing is this it's been two weeks since we talked about this. And so if the application, if the example or the illustration of these people not eating uh, until they killed Paul didn't connect with you two weeks ago, imagine this. What did you do immediately after you left two weeks ago after services? Lunch. I bet a couple of you were probably excited about it. It's okay because I've been there. Probably instead of listening to part of my lesson, you're like, where am I going to eat lunch today? You know, that's fine. I've done that too. But like, you're th- probably, now you're definitely thinking about lunch because I've mentioned it, right? I've just shot myself in the foot here. Okay, stop it. No, but, but uh, you're, you're thinking about lunch. And, and then you go to lunch and then you probably even ate dinner that night, you people. But, but imagine this. Imagine if 
for, since the last time we were here in this section, some of you were like, what chapter are we in, right? It's been that long, you know? Imagine if you hadn't eaten since then. You probably wouldn't be here because you're like, I don't know if I can drive. I'm sort of kind of dizzy, you know. And where would you be after not eating for two weeks? Of course, the question is this. This is the question. God didn't do this to them. They did this to them. They said, God, you'll conform to our will, right? God says, I've got this plan. You're welcome to jump on board with me, right? But, but they set themselves up against God. And at some point, they did one of two things, right? What are the two things? You know what they are. I'll have to tell you. They either ate or they died. Maybe they ate and blamed Paul. That Paul. Like it's his fault somehow. But we have a way of doing that, of justifying things. Like Paul did this to me, so it's, it's on him. And I'm just going to eat now. Kind of, kind of a situation. And so either, either they have eaten or they're, they're not going to make it very much longer. They, you know, they've got some time. You're going to see time progress as we go through this chapter this week. First five days and then a couple of years. They're not going to make it. And so what we don't want to do is set ourselves up against God. We might just be really, really sure. Really, really sure of ourselves. But we don't want to set ourselves up against God. We seek His will first. And we conform to His will. And that's what we see in Paul. That's the example. That's the illustration. That's, that's what we see in this historical context. As we go through, we see Paul. He said in chapter 22, my conscience is clear. And he got punched in the face for it. But that's what he said. My conscience is clear. He's just following the will of God, and that's what we're called to do as well. So that brings us down to Acts chapter 22, verse, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 23, verse 27. I'm going to kind of read and talk, read and talk. That's what we're going to do. Verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews, and they, and they were, uh, oh, let me start in verse 26. So Claudius Lysias is writing this letter to Governor Felix. Claudius is the commander. He's the one that's uh, depending on how you look at it, I mean, God has saved Paul, but he has used the commander to do that um, on two different occasions so far. He's about to do it a third time. He, he pulled him out of the temple situation, and, and then he pulled him out of the uh, meeting with the uh, Sanhedrin where he thought they were going to maybe tear him apart, literally. And, uh, and now he's about to save him a third time, and he's writing this letter because he's found out these people are going to try to ambush and kill Paul. And so he's going to send him with soldiers, uh, and he's sending him with this letter, and the letter reads like this. 20, verse 26, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops to rescue him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that their accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered uh, his accusers to present to you their case against him. How much of that was 100% accurate? Was that 100% accurate? From his point of view. <laughs> there was a lot of truth there. I, I mean, I've seen worse things. We're going to see worse things in just a second. Okay, we'll, we'll point that out. But listen, um, this is what we do. I, I, I don't... I think maybe we've done this. Maybe most of us have done this at one time or another. Have you ever kind of had to write something about yourself and you make yourself look better on paper? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? 
or you tell the story about what you did, and it seems better when I'm telling it than how it actually went. You know, it's better on paper. I think this is one of those situations where it's, it's just a little bit better on paper. Okay, this actually answers the question that's been hanging out in the air since chapter 22. It's not been the most important question that we've had to deal with, but for Claudius, I think it's the most important question that's been hanging out in the hanging out there since chapter 22, and it's this. Uh, looking at this section again, he says. This man was seized by the Jews. That, that's accurate, right? They're about to kill him. One, again, that's accurate. But I came with my troops to rescue him. Is that accurate? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. For I had learned he was a Roman citizen. Not accurate. Well, later it was accurate. Maybe I'm confusing things just a little bit. Remember the question in chapter 22? I'll just go there for one second. Our is the 22 verse 26. Uh, I'll read. I'll read 25, 26. Acts 22, 25, 26. Remember this. Paul's been rescued, but now he's he's with the commander uh, and his soldiers. And he says, verse 25. As they stretched him, Paul. As they stretched him out to. Uh, I'm sorry. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, "Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty?" So, what are they about? What is this commander who saved the day three times? What's he about to do to Paul? Flog him. Flog him. He wants information. He's going to torture him until he gets the information he wants. Okay. Uh, until Paul says, "Is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen that's not even been found guilty?" Verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? See, this is the question that's been hanging. Again, for us, it's not the most important question. But for Claudius Lysias, this is the question that's been hanging out there since then. Okay, uh, What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. Well, he's done a lot. He saved him a couple times. He's about to save him again. And as he writes this letter, he writes it in a way that it looks a little bit better on paper, I think, than it was in real life. He says... Because I found out he was a Roman citizen, I came to his aid. Well, he does find out he's a Roman citizen, and later he comes to his aid. But, for, but before that, there was this question of, uh-oh, you're in trouble because you just did this to a Roman citizen. So he kind of glosses over that. And, uh, and we don't need to maybe make a huge point about it, but I do think it's probably worth examining ourselves and asking ourselves, do we kind of do that as well? Maybe kind of uh, gloss over things and make our situations uh, look even better uh, than they are. Uh, but Claudius does come. And again, he, he does, I think, try to compensate for this. I mean, it's incredible uh, because he sends, when he finds out about this plot to kill uh, Paul, he sends them. How long does he wait to send them? You see that in the text? He doesn't wait. He waits till nighttime. He waits till about 9 p.m. So under the, that same night, under the cover of darkness, he sends Paul out uh, to Caesarea, I believe. Um, and uh, he sends him out. Uh, in, in the darkness, you know, before, and he doesn't, you know, before anybody finds out that their ploy has been uh, found out or whatever, they, they send Paul on. And, uh, and not only do they send him on, they send him, it says in verse 23, with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. I mean, I, this question from chapter 22 that's been hanging out there, what are you going to do? I think he's compensating here. He's making nothing is going to happen to this Roman citizen. I saved the day. That's what you need to know is I saved the day. He sends him with 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 horsemen under the cover of night before anybody knows Paul's gone. Wow, Paul's going to make it to his destination safely. Right? Uh, and so he says, and so he kind of frames it for the governor and sends that note. Now we'll kind of skip a little bit. He 
basically we see that he does make that journey. He does make it safely. And the letter is handed over um, to uh, Governor Felix. So in verse 34 it says, The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. And so he agrees to hear his case. It's, we won't cover it again because we covered it before. But Cilicia, um, you know, he, Paul has used that. Being from that place means something. Kind of like being from Rome or even from Athens and so forth. Um, and so he goes on. Uh, so he says, uh, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. And it's five days later, verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, uh, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea. Again, every time I hear days, I'm like, those poor people are starving to death. You know, and that's what I hear every time I hear days. Uh, but it's five days later, the high priest Ananias, I'm going to read this little section, uh, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Ter- Tertullius, um, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, uh, Tertullius presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed, this is what they say, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about many reforms in this nation. Everywhere, in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. And so, uh, so um, you see what happened. Who, who is with Governor Felix now? There's a lawyer, but who's the kind of primary person it mentions? See that? It's the high priest. So this is what I want us to understand is this is now the second time that the high priest has had to come to deal with Paul. This is the second time he's not had a choice in the matter. I, just, I think you, when you're trying to figure out what does the room feel like, what does the tension in the room feel like? You have, to, you have to equate the fact that this is now the second time that the high priest has had to, now he's had to leave Jerusalem and, and come there. It, he doesn't have a, a choice in this unless he wants to start some kind of an incident. He has to be there. Um, and, and, and not to mention that, the last time they were in the same place, again, I mentioned it earlier, uh, Paul's, you know, he commands Paul get punched in the face. Uh, the last time they were together, there was a, like a riot among them, and, and they were fighting among them, uh, even among the, uh, uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees, and Paul was almost ripped apart. That's what happened last time they were together. I just want you to feel the tension that might be in this room in, in the moment. And, uh, um, and, and not, not to mention that, but also there's been this plan to kill Paul, and the fact that Paul is standing there alive is just evidence of their failure. So that's why, that's what is happening as they get together. Um, and so the high priest brings his, his lawyer. Uh, of course, that makes sense. Um, and, and the lawyer says, basically, appreciate you willing to hear us. Verse 5 says, uh, when we have found this man, Paul, when we have found this man, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among all the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Now, again, I said we'd talk about this later. But we looked at the letter 
that Claudius Lysias wrote. And it was pretty much true, except for the little part that wasn't true. We just glossed over that bit. Now, this one is a more extreme example of that. There is very little truth in this, um, of what he says as he, as he presents this. Uh, and again, this is a lawyer speaking on behalf of the high priest. Okay, And this is just full of lies, just absolute lies. Now, you could look at what Paul had done around the world and frame it that way. I think that's, you could do that, you know, because if you just sort of look casually at what Paul, where Paul had been, it's true. He had been over a lot of the known world at that time. That's accurate, right? And everywhere he went, there did seem to be like problems and, and, uh, and uh, riots and things like that. So I think you could, from an outside perspective, look at it and say that. But then he just said, but, but you really have to twist it. You really have to frame it. And then he says, though, uh, Oh, yeah, verse 6, and even tried to desecrate the temple, so he seized him. That's just a, that's just a lie. And it's just so shocking. It's like, wow, Mike, they're trying to kill Paul. Why are you shocked by a lie? They're trying to kill him. Why are you shocked by a lie? And I just am. I mean, this is the high priest. And this is just a straight-out lie. And it just surprises to me. It surprises me that the person leading this whole thing would just be so willing to lie to get the result that they want. And we just need to make sure we don't ever fall into that. We need to learn uh, from, from his example. But the lie is even, that he even tried to desecrate the temple, so he seized him. Uh, by examining him, he seized him. You'll see that, verse 9. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Okay. I want to step to the side for just a second because there's a point of application here, okay? It's just a small point of application. The high priest lied through his lawyer, okay? So we'll blame it on his lawyer. Lawyer lied. And what did all the other Jews that were there with him do? They agreed with him. They agreed with him. They lied with him. Here's a point about leadership, okay? It's for everybody because we all find ourselves to be leaders in all the various situations we find ourselves in life, Okay? Is that if you are a leader, if you just have a title leader, then this may not apply. But if you actually are a leader, people, that means people are following you. Right? If you're a leader, <laughs> people are following you. Okay? And that, that's not just in the church here. Okay? So this isn't just, say, David Raymond <laughs> or me or whatever. Uh, <coughs> But we're all leaders in different ways. I mean, there's Bible hour happening in this back room. She's leading back there, these, these kids. In a, maybe we don't want to use that phrase. She's serving, whatever. But she's guiding them back there in, the, in that room, right? Uh, there, there are all kinds of things. We were, we were led in so many different ways. Uh, in, in, your, in your work, in your jobs, how many of you uh, are the president of something, have, have created your own businesses, have, are in a management situation, you work with kids, you lead kids all day, um, Maybe in your families, you have people that look to you. I bet at some place in your life, you're finding yourself in a position of leadership. You may not ever say it that way. But if somebody, anybody is following you, that means you're a leader. Food bank, right? I mean, whatever. If somebody's following you, that means you're a leader. And that is a fact, right? But it's also a warning, because here's a situation where the high priest is leading with lies. And so everybody follows. Must be okay if he's doing it. Must be sanctioned by God. 
That's what we see here. And I'm shocked, even though they're trying to kill Paul, and I should be, I'm still shocked by it because of what's happening from the top down there. Okay? Uh, uh, so uh, he says, uh, and even, tra- tra- so verse 9, then the other Jews join in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Verse 10, when the governor uh, motioned for Paul to speak, Paul replied, I'm going to read that, verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Verse 11. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers, meaning these people that are right here. Do, do I want to make that point? Do you understand that? His accusers are literally those people that are right there. That's the high priest and the lawyer and the few Jews, presumably from, from the Sanhedrin, that are with him there. They are his accusers, okay? He says, uh, he says, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship my accusers. These people did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. A part of the reason for that might be that they weren't actually even there at that moment. Okay, Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I think there's sort of an insinuation that these people weren't even present uh, at that moment. They were, they were involved later after they were called and there was chaos. And he's going to make the point. They were involved the next day. But I don't even get the sense that they were involved at that point. He says, my, whatever the case, he says, my accusers, what can't they do? He says, they can't prove any of what they're saying. To you, and so Paul, in one, what we have is a verse. Paul, in one verse, he just sort of like brushes off this whole accusation. He just sort of brushes it to the side, right? Uh, it just so easily. I, I think I would get wrapped up in more of a defense and argument, but he just says they can't prove what they're saying. And then verse twelve says, "My accusers did not find me uh, arguing with anyone in the temple." Verse thirteen, and they can they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which. They call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now Paul does a whole lot in that paragraph there. Okay, I'll just say real briefly. Um, he says, uh, he says basically, this, this claim... That I desecrated the temple. It's not founded. They can't prove it. And he moves on. Okay. And the next part is sort of like, it seems to me like it's sort of part defense and part Bible study. You know, and, and I, you wouldn't call it Bible study, you know, you just say witnessing or whatever. But it kind of morphs from just defense to almost talking about his faith. And he says, however, I admit that I worship God. I worship the God of our ancestors. Uh, as a follower of the way. And then he addresses this because they, he said they view it as a sect, but it's not a sect. And he explains in this paragraph, he explains why it's not a sect and how that's true. Uh, he says uh, uh, they call a sect, but he says that's not it. He says, I believe everything in accordance with the law, and that is written in the prophets. Now, Luke has already explained this several times. If you look at Paul's writings, he, Paul talks about this all the time. 
Paul is not against the law. Paul is not against the prophets. He's not against the things of the Jews. What he's saying is he's not a sect. He is where God has been going the whole time. This way, Christianity, whatever you want to call it, is where God has been leading this whole time. The law, the prophets are the very things and people that have led us to understanding who Jesus is, who the Christ is. It's all been leading uh, to Jesus in the first place. So he just says that. He says, I believe what they believe. I, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law as written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be, and then he says, a resurrection. Of course, that was a problem uh, in the last chapter. Uh, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear. So he says two things. He says the two things that he said with the Sanhedrin that caused a riot just a few days before, just a week or so before. He says about the resurrection and he says... What about his conscience? He says, conscience clear. clear. He got hit in the mouth for that, mouth for that last time. That's why he got struck in the mouth for, for, for saying that last time. Now here he is. The high priest is there. There's probably this tense atmosphere. But Paul takes another moment to say, my conscience is clear. Okay, he's not going to get hit in the mouth this time for saying that. But it's also a point for him, and it should be a point for us, that the things that we do, our conscience needs to be clear as we move forward and as we do what we do. And that was definitely, that's definitely the example that we see with Paul here in that situation. Um, he always strives to keep his conscience clear. Verse 17, we're just kind of run through the end. He says, after an absence of several years, uh, he said, so now he addresses his wife who's in Jerusalem at the first in the first place, it says, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Why was I there? Not to start problems, but to help the poor. And that's true. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. And that's all verifiable, right? And, but not by them. <laughs> Verse 19 but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. And so you see what Paul said. He said, the, the people who are actually accusing me here, that's the high priest, the, the lawyer, and the other Jews that are with him, they, they, have, they can't prove what they're saying. The wrong people are here for that. Okay, there are some Jews that are from uh, uh, Asia Minor, the province of Asia, uh, that if they were here, they could make that, uh, that claim uh, against me. And so maybe we've got the wrong people here, right? But he says, now he turns it, he says in verse 20, or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. You see that? If you want to accuse me about something, which, by the way, is not provable and, and it's confirmable that I did not cause a riot there. But if you want to accuse me of that, you need to bring the people that made the claim from, from the province of Asia. You need to bring them here. Now, the people that are here that are accusing me, they are, the only thing they can accuse me of is what happened the next day in the meeting of the Sanhedrin. Okay, and, he's, and so he says what that was. He says, verse 24, unless it was this one thing. That was the next day at the at the. At the Sanhedrin meeting, unless it's this one thing, I shouted, I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. If this group is going to accuse me of anything, the only thing they can accuse me of is that I shouted about the resurrection. And, and so maybe that's what this trial is actually about. Maybe that's what this is actually about. Now Luke tells us something that's really important. 
So verse 21 again, unless it's this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Luke tells us something important, verse 22. Then Felix, who was, so that's the governor he's speaking to, right? Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. That was it. It was over. Now, maybe Luke summarized some stuff or whatever, but that ended it. Paul said, they weren't there. All they accused me of is what happened the next day in the Sanhedrin. When I shouted about the resurrection, they accused me about that. It says that the governor was well acquainted with the way. That, again, that's Christianity, okay? Uh, he, Christians. He was, well, he was well acquainted. I don't know what that means, but if he's well acquainted, then he knows about the resurrection. He knows that it's about the Christ, the Messiah. He knows at least some piece of that. He knows that what Paul was saying in the middle of the Sanhedrin in front of the high priest was about the resurrection of the dead and the Messiah and the Christ, which they don't believe in. He was well acquainted with the way. And not only that, but in a second, we're going to find out that he was married to a Jew, So what else is he well acquainted with? Well, he's very well acquainted with Judaism as well as Christianity. And so when Paul says, this is what it's really about, I shouted about the resurrection, and that's why we're here. He says, okay, that's over. And he says, uh, verse 22, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. He says, when Lysias, that's the commander, that's uh, Claudius, uh, the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. Why does he need an account? Well, Lysias is the one that can confirm who's telling the truth here. Lysias was there at the end of the, of the trouble of, uh, in the temple. He was there in the meeting. He was the one that, that created the meeting with the Sanhedrin, and he knows what Paul said. So Paul says this, and it's like, okay, if that's what it's about, that's what it's about. He's going to call Lysias, the commander, up to verify if those things are true. Does that make sense? Okay, and so one more thing. We'll, we'll end. I've got a little bit long. I apologize. He says, um, um, <clears throat> so then the next thing he does, verse 23 says, he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So he's, he doesn't let him go, but he does give him more freedom after this. And you can see he's, he's putting the pieces together a little bit, seems to be. Verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. This is where we find out who was Jewish. Uh, he sent for Paul, listen to this, and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, listen to what he taught, righteousness, self-control, and judgment, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Um, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he, kept, so he sent for him frequently to talk with him. Listen, look at what God's doing. Paul's not in trouble. Paul's not in trouble. It's not like God can't figure this out, how to get Paul free. Paul is, is taken out of out of. Uh, this dangerous situation and put in this relatively safe position. It is not just for a trial. So God's like, hopefully that works out. No, he's given this opportunity to have a Bible study. Again, that's maybe the way we would say it, to get witness about Jesus to who? The Roman governor, right? Which is exactly what Jesus said he was going to do with Paul all those chapters and years ago. He was going to use Paul among the Jews and among the Gentiles and among the rulers of the Gentiles. And here is God. That's what you need to see in this section. God accomplishing his plan in a way that you probably wouldn't expect him to. Because that's what God does. And so he's speaking with Felix and he's talking about righteousness, self-control, judgment. Let me just say self-control is not high on the priority list of 
any Roman or Greek citizen really or leader. That's not a high priority kind of thing for him. And so as Paul talks to Felix about self-control and judgment and his wife is a Jew, understand they're listening to him. He leaves afraid. And I just want to end on that note, okay? I want you to understand this. A Roman governor went to meet with a prisoner and the governor left afraid. Because when you're confronted with God, and really it's the same point as last week, okay? You don't want to set yourself up against the living God. And when you realize who God is, and you see that you have set yourself up against Him, there is fear there. But there's no fear for those who have accepted Him. And of course, He welcomes us all to Him. Okay? I think there's a lot to learn there. But I think the bottom line is what Peter says really in 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's that we should live faithfully. And that's what we see through Paul in that whole section is Paul living faithfully. People are going to accuse you of doing wrong even when you don't do wrong. And our job is not to defend ourselves even though we may have to sometimes. It's to live faithfully. And ultimately if we do that, God will be glorified.